You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Uh, ben, ain't shit going on. Kind of ain't shit going on. I mean, there is hashtag some shit going on in the form of this weird Sunday night UFC Fight Night 103, which I believe emanates from Phoenix, Arizona. That is a thing that's happening. This weekend, headlined by uh, Yair Rodriguez, and we think, knock on wood, BJ Penn. The ghost of BJ Penn. At this point. We're uh, a little less than a week out, and BJ Penn has yet to withdraw. So, <laughs> I see. How, I like how you phrased that. It did put us, though, in a position where we, in trying to figure out what our rounds could possibly be, we said, all right. One round about BJ Penn, Yair Rodriguez, and then... It falls off. Boy. I gotta be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, I don't see us doing a whole round about Joe Lozon and uh, Marcin Held. That's right. I don't see us doing a whole round about uh, Meryl Streep's Golden Globe speech either. So here we are. Hashtag ain't shit going on. Even though there is weirdly some shit going on. A weird amount of shit is going on. Boy. None of it rising to the level of the shit, though. So what we've done, per usual, we've thrown it out there to the co-main event universe that we're having a slow week. We're going to do a hashtag ain't shit going on episode, which basically is listener mail all the time, all day, all night, 24-7. Well, for the next hour and change, I guess, is what we're really doing. We're beasting for the next hour and change. We will be totally beasting. Uh, and as usual, the co-main event universe came strong with, how many pages is that that I sent you? Uh, I'm, I'm over here. I'm looking at 2,500 words worth of questions. Yeah. So we're not going to get to all of those, but, uh, we're going to do our God. best, right? Yeah. So let's just kick it off. We already said we got too many questions to use. I'll go first. Is that all right? And then just that, one right up, just popcorn style. That's right. Okay. Uh, it's the, it's the lightning round. Remember when we used to do the lightning round? Old school co-main event podcast, uh, callback. Did we do that? Yeah. We used to do a lightning round when we would do these, uh, all questions considered episodes. Okay. That sounds vaguely familiar. Not for a long time, though. First question this week comes to comes from Rob L., who was the first person to correctly follow the instructions that I posted on Twitter to please, for the love of God, someone send us a question not about Meryl Streep, but actually about UFC Fight Night 103, now, see, 10 versus Rodriguez. That, I'm sure, is... A, a request you did not think you were going to have to ever make with regards to the Co-Main Event Podcast. Well, that's you what, never thought you were going to have to tell our listeners, please send us a question about anything other than Meryl Streep. That's one of the interesting things about covering this sport and doing this show, man. You never know. You really don't. We could be sitting here talking about Sophie's Choice this week, right? We might still. Rob L. writes, how do you see BJ Penn losing against Yair Rodriguez this okay. weekend? All right. Also, after he loses, how long between his quote-unquote retirement and his eventual return from said retirement? Also, also, who will he face after that? I hear Baruto will be looking for an open-weight opponent for next year's New Year's Eve show. So not only did Rob L. follow your pretty easy instructions, he did so 
in a fashion that he had to know the co-main event podcast universe would enjoy. You'd, yeah, you'd think you'd think so, right? But uh, that's that's as good as we're going to get here in terms of uh, spearheading a conversation about BJ Penn versus Yair Rodriguez. It does sum up the the general feel going into this, does why, it not? Why are they doing this on Sunday? Do we know? Is it just because they're going to take advantage of uh, the Monday holiday for Martin Luther King Day? Uh, playoff football, maybe? Oh, there you go. Yeah. I bet it's to steer clear of uh, Saturday night uh, playoff football game. Yeah. Although, remember when they did that with Conor McGregor and they timed it just perfectly for him to be in the main event of that weird like late night yeah, coming FS1 right off one show. NFC championship game or something. It went off like gangbusters. It worked wonders. But here we are. We have uh, Rodriguez and Penn coming to us from the Talking Stick Resort Arena, where yeah. all the big fights go down. Are we sure this isn't a Bellator card? <laughs> are we sure that this isn't an elaborate practical joke <laughs> to like get get us to spend podcast time to get the MMA media, the hated MMA media, to spend time propping up this BJ Penn Yair Rodriguez fight when? Uh, all someone's crazy fever dream <laughs> let me let me pose a challenge to you chad dunnis in answer to this question you know i can't i'm not going to be successful in this or any challenge tell rob l he's wrong make the case that bj penn goes out there and beats the young dynamo yair rodriguez all right i will i'll take on your challenge okay even though now i'm just we're hashtag just saying stuff for sure uh but here's my case about how four to one underdog B.J. Penn goes out there. God, that's insane. <laughs> uh, for his first fight since July the 6th, 2014. Uh, doesn't it seem like that Frankie Edgar, B.J. Penn thing just fucking happened? And, no. And yet it's like... No, it does not. All, damn, damn near three years ago. Two and a half years ago now. It seems like about that long Maybe it just... What it did was it burned itself into my frontal cortex. You feel like That's you relive thing, it right? every time? Every you, time you, I you... shut my eyes at night, I see <laughs> uh, the like pale, weird-looking BJ Penn marching around the cage like uh, off-brand Eddie Wineland getting beat up by uh, Frankie Edgar. But here's my case. Back to the case Here's how baby J. Penn wins this bad boy this weekend. Ben, Yair Rodriguez is a feast or famine kind of fighter. He's going to go out there with the spinning low kicks and the spinning elbows and the spinning knees to the dome and the jump kicks. And B.J. Penn, who, if you're going to say anything about B.J. Penn, he's approached this comeback, I, I believe, in the, in, the, in the proper and serious manner. Perhaps more serious than we've really seen BJ Penn before back in the days when he was doing his cardio by running the rock. Remember that? Oh, how could I forget running the rock? At least to prepare for these comeback fights. He's been down in Albuquerque with Greg Jackson, Mike Winklejohn, all the guys down there. Maybe BJ Penn goes out there with a John Fitch UFC 27 style uh, game plan. Remember that when he went out and he took John Fitch down immediately? Maybe... Yair Rodriguez comes out with his spinning shit offense. BJ Penn opts for a safe and sane ground-based top position, ground and pound, dare you to get off your back Yair Rodriguez game plan, and salts away a decision victory. So you're saying that you think BJ Penn... I'm I'm merely responding to a challenge, (laughs) sir. All right. All right. Uh, In... In the version of reality that your answer presupposes, 38-year-old BJ Penn goes out there and holds a grown man down 
for five rounds. Maybe he catches a sub. Maybe black belt Brazilian jiu-jitsu prodigy BJ Penn catches a rear naked choke on a scrambling Yair Rodriguez earlier in the first early in the first round before anybody gets too sweaty. And he shocks the world. See, now it's getting better. You see how we're workshopping this together? Yeah, it's, okay. It's, improving. It's, it's starting to come together. Our yeah. game plan for BJ Penn is starting to come together. But I mean, don't you feel like that's the best, like that's the best BJ could do? BJ Penn, you know, for all of his technical ability and, and at one point anyway, high level athleticism is going to get feasted on if he goes out there and tries to fight Rodriguez on the feet, don't you think? I would think his only chance would be Grind, pull, push up again. I realize saying BJ Penn and grind in the same sentences. <laughs> I'm already dealing with fantasy land here. But like, you know, push him up against the cage, close the distance, try to take him down, maybe try to submit him with the vaunted BJJ skills that we almost never see from BJ Penn. Yeah. Don't you think? Okay, yeah. Uh, I definitely think that if if he were going to win, that would probably be it. I think the longer this fight goes, the worse it is for BJ Penn. Just because he's never been that dude who is stronger as the fight goes on, really. Like, that's just not... That that was not his M.O. in his best years, uh, especially against a uh, young dude like Yair Rodriguez who's just going to keep coming at you. I mean, I do think you're you're right that there is some hope that Yair Rodriguez just gets buck wild in there and BJ Penn manages to catch him with something. I also, though... I'm trying to imagine this, your scenario where BJ Penn takes him down. You know, Yair Rodriguez gets careless trying to get back up. BJ Penn snatches a submission, and it's the worst thing that could possibly happen to him. Because then he's like, I'm back? Yeah. I'm going to fight for five more years. Is there any chance that Yair Rodriguez is overrated? Because here's a guy who's 9-1, and one, uh, undefeated in the UFC, obviously. Comes in still uh, 24 years old. Just turned 24 years old, too. Wow. Uh, so, uh, but his wins are Alex Caceres, Andre Feely, Dan Hooker, Charles Rosa, Leonardo Morales in the UFC. Any chance that BJ Penn can uh, represent a level of competition that Yair, Yair Rodriguez just hasn't seen yet? Sure, Again, that's possible. Dealing in fantasy fantasy talk here. I mean, he does bring the KG veteran savvy to the cage, and that's something that Yair Rodriguez has not seen a ton of from former opponents. So, yeah. That is absolutely possible. Um, it also, though, just seems like everything is in place here for a really super depressing night. That's that's what I feel like I have to emotionally prepare for, even while allowing for the possibility that BJ Penn is going to go out there and surprise us and win one for the old dudes and expose some heretofore unseen weaknesses in Yair Rodriguez's game. I feel like just for my own stability, I have to prepare for the likelihood that that is not going to happen. That, in fact, it's going to be the same scenario we've seen happening to BJ Penn over and over again. And I'm already getting myself ready for the emotional post-fight speech in which he says, okay, this is it for real this time. I, I don't know why I keep doing this. We've already spent too long on this topic, but since it is the only legitimately interesting fight coming up this week, I'll say a couple more things about it. What can be made of the series of matchups given to BJ Penn since he announced his return? I think back in January of this year, he said he was going to, he was going to come back. Uh, and you know, a, a series of injuries, both I think to himself and to others have prevented him from actually doing that. But they started him off, if I, if I am reading this correctly, with Dennis Seaver. He's supposed to fight Dennis Seaver at UFC 199. And everybody knew what that was about. And then, uh, Seaver gets injured. He gets replaced by Cole Miller, 
little tougher. Little tougher. Uh, Penn removes himself from that card after he was flagged for the use of a medically administered IV during a non-fight period, which is uh, you saw a violation, a thing in and of itself. Uh, Cole Miller gets replaced by Ricardo Lamas, which now it's starting to take on a punishment type feel <laughs> in the matchmaking department. Uh, but Penn pulled out of that fight, signing an injury. Uh, and now Ricardo Lamas has been replaced for the January 15th fight card by Yair Rodriguez. What's really going on, Ben, with this series of opponents slash non-opponents for BJ Penn? At the risk of reading too much into that succession of opponents, it does seem like some patience has run out at the at the UFC offices, doesn't it? Just just from I mean, something's going on. There's some kind of uh, checks and balances system has been enacted here to try to uh, make an example out of BJ Penn. Just put his head up on a spike so the rest of the 37 year olds of the world don't get any smart ideas about coming back teasing us. Yeah, I mean, it. if I were thinking practically in the UFC's position at this point, I would be thinking it might be better for me if this young kid goes out there and gets a, a win over a big name, and then I can really use that to promote him going forward. It I can do more with that than I can from BJ Penn winning one more fight and knocking off one of my young guys. I mean, of course, you can always... It's not like it would be a career killer for the young Yair Rodriguez or anything. He, you know, he's got plenty of time. But if I were looking toward future matchups, I would not really be thinking that the business I want to be in is the BJ Penn business going forward. All right, before we move on, let me just lay this on you real quick. Yair Razael Rodriguez Portillo. Okay. All right, what's, what's the next question? <laughs> That's it, huh? You I would be remiss if I didn't say that at least so. once. This one comes to us from Christian Diaz. I guess we're just... El Pantera, by the way. We're going to go ahead and get this out of the way right now. He asks, Given the MMA world working itself into a tizzy over Meryl Streep's benign comment concerning our own little sport of punchy-kicky and its subsequent spillover into a budding feud with President-elect of the United States, Trump, has mixed martial arts slow entry into mainstream coverage caused public perception to warp it from a niche sport into something more akin to a spectacle that could be described as too weird to live and too rare to die? I'm all aboard the hashtag would watch train for Street versus Trump at Ryzen Battle of Moonbase 1, but is it possible that the mainstream media coverage that so many have clamored for is instead contorting the sport that we celebrate? Please make like a Shakespearean character insulting a friend and dis... dis cuz... That's a pretty good email. That is. Considering the, the subject matter uh, from Christian Diaz. Uh, I, I haven't watched this Meryl Streep thing. It was at the Golden Globes, which I obviously did not take in. Uh, DVR'd it, is what you're saying? Yeah, I'm going to fast forward later through the through the boring parts right. and just hit up the, <laughs> the uh, La La Land yeah. acceptance speeches. Uh, I, I, I read the highlights. I've heard the highlights of the Meryl Streep thing. Uh, the, you, you have to admit, as Christian Diaz writes, working ourselves into a tizzy, over this particular slight is so totally MMA. Yes, it is. Uh, above and beyond all else. It seemed to me like Meryl Streep uh, was, was just going for like a, like she just employed mixed martial arts as a device yes. to set up a joke. Because it had arts in it. Yeah, it has the words arts in it. So she wanted to make the comment mixed martial arts, which is not an art or which is not the arts. The arts. Right. See, and I think that, uh, yeah, the, the point that she was which, making. Fact check, fact check. That's accurate. <laughs> yes. This is not the arts. Uh, 
the the point that she was making at that point in the speech was basically uh, pointing out all the people in Hollywood who make all these TV and movie stuff possible uh, and how they all come from a bunch of different countries and cultures and that basically if we allow this kind of undercurrent in some aspects of American society where we're anti-foreigner, anti-outsider, uh, um, we would kind of destroy this film and entertainment industry that we love so much. Uh, and then her the remark was, all, we'd have nothing to watch but football and mixed martial arts, which is not the arts. Um, and see, one of the weird things to me about this, and I, I wrote about it uh, today, was how for so long MMA fans have wanted to be thought of as a mainstream sport. We've wanted this to be thought of as just like those other sports. And here we are, right there in here the same sense as football. The same sense with football. And we're mad because we're not the arts. Like, that's what we're mad about. Because it seems like that's when we just start to seem like a bunch of crybabies who have to, like, if you don't, if you won't let us believe that we are absolutely everything, that we are everything that could possibly be important, then we're going to get mad. And I, I mean, I can see some people, there is an art to MMA. Sure. There is some art absolutely. in that. Uh, but when somebody says the arts, it's like when somebody talks about sports, but they refer to it as sport. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. Someone is about to take some shit too seriously here. <laughs> or they refer to the theater. Like you, there's a connotative meaning behind that. And you know, you know what they're getting at. You know, when she says the arts, she has some specific shit in mind and it's not battle rappers, you know, like it's, it's some, some specific type shit that she has in mind. And I can see like the, an element where we're a little annoyed that it seems like, okay, the, the Hollywood actress is sneering down at the dumb jocks. Like, right. and I get it fine, but it's like, you're at a Hollywood award show for one thing. You, we're listening to a speech from a Hollywood award show. So if your complaint is that maybe they are too self-important, that's what they do at those things. That is like the whole reason those things exist is for Hollywood people to act self-important. Now, this is a little bit outside my sphere, but I, you know what I have not noticed today on Twitter uh, in terms of people freaking out about the injustice of Meryl Streep's speech at the Golden Globe Awards? Football people. How about that? Doesn't seem like football people are all up in arms about it, which, if you stop and think about it for a second, might be a commentary in and of itself Yes, about where football is and where we are uh, in terms of... of uh, being comfortable with our fanship, our well, fandom. And it's not just where we are, I think, but where we both came from. Because the football people know, like, yeah, hey, whatever, man. Take a shot at football if you want to from your, your Hollywood awards ceremony. Like, football ain't going anywhere. It's a damn religion in America. It, it's fine. Like, take your shots if you want to. I don't have to worry that it's going to, like, if there's going to be an NFL season next year. And MMA fans, we still have that kind of holdover of being just kind of like defensive, feeling like the sport was trying to, like, was close to being run into extinction, uh, and that it has to constantly fight for its place at the table in, like, the greater American sporting world. And so I think that that's just what we're seeing here is people's reaction there uh, is they still feel that insecurity. Yeah. And on. Because of that insecurity or, or, you know, because it seems like every time someone from the quote unquote mainstream invokes mixed martial arts, it always seems like they have no clue what they're talking about. I understand some of that frustration from 
uh, mixed martial arts people. And frankly, one of the things mixed martial arts people just do uh, is vent on social media. I'm not sure that there's a ton of difference between venting about some stuff Meryl Streep said at the Golden Globes and venting about one judge at a Thursday night UFC event scoring the bout for the wrong guy. You know, to me, it, it comes sort of from the same place. Uh, and obviously, Meryl Streep doesn't really know that much about mixed martial arts. Uh, and obviously, mixed martial arts is just as diverse, maybe even more diverse as any of the mainstream American sports, football, basketball, baseball. Uh, and so we're, it, it seems like, like I said, she's using the, the actual term mixed martial arts as nothing more than a device right. here to set up the joke that she wants to make. And progress is that she knew she could make that remark and she wouldn't have to explain to these people what mixed martial arts was. Yeah, there Ten you years go. ago... Now you're putting a positive you, spin maybe on it. You don't feel comfortable. Maybe you don't feel like you can make that reference and have a, the, the people in the ballroom at the Golden Globes uh, understand what the hell you're even talking about. Now, even 67-year-old Meryl Streep knows what the hell mixed martial arts is. All right, 20 minutes into this thing, and we've answered a grand total of two questions. Next question this week comes to us from Andrew Norton. He writes, once again, Ali Abdelaziz, if that is his real name, has been caught out tweeting on behalf of his fighters without realizing he was still logged in onto his own Twitter account. This is becoming a common occurrence for Ali, and I'm starting to think it's intentional. Also, is... It is starting to make me doubt the origin of some of Habib's awesome tweets. Please discourse. Yeah. Uh, this does seem like it has happened an inordinate amount of times yeah, to the how, clients of Ali Abdelaziz. How how hard is it? How hard is it to just like double check what account you're logged into? I mean, when you got a burner, right? When you're out here spitting fire and you got a comeback, when you're out, when you're going to go out here and burn Tony Ferguson and you just it's burning a hole in your pocket and you can't wait to tweet it out. Sometimes maybe it's hard to just take a breath, stop, and make sure that you're logged into the uh, Habib Nurmagomedov Twitters instead of the Ali Abdelaziz Twitters. It's not that hard. That's the answer to the question. It's not that hard. Hey, man, and... I made a case BJ Penn could win that fight. Okay. and I, It's look, opposite day. I had the same reaction. I don't know why it, it, took, it, it took me this time of him screwing this up before I finally had this reaction. But w like Andrew Norton... With the most recent instance, I was just kind of like, okay, wait a minute. If some of the endearing quality of Khabib Nurmagomedov on social media, now there's some reason to question whether that was really him or whether that was a calculated effort by his manager. Now it, it does, it's, the whole thing starts to feel a little astroturfy, <laughs> and I don't like it. I don't like it. And now I'm going to have to wonder going forward, whenever there's a sweet burn, from your boy Nermi on social media, a little voice in my brain is going to be going, Ali, is that you? Is that you? That would be kind of a bummer, although would, in terms of uh, mystique making, would give Ali Abdelaziz more power than I would have just guessed that he would have. Then it would make him seem like he's better at it, especially since he can't figure out which Twitter account he's logged into from one moment to the next. But, yeah, but he doesn't hey, get man, the tone. Maybe he doesn't get the tone and the, the, the syntax down yeah, pretty well. Like from an, an author perspective, he's <laughs> yes. got some he's got some natural chops there, man. I think we could work with. Uh yeah obviously I'm a different guy than most of these uh MMA fighter types, but like 
what do you what do you think the conversation is like? What do you think that the decision making process is like? And what do you think is going through the fighters' heads when perhaps part of this agreement with the manager company, the the managerial company, is uh, you will turn over your Twitter passwords to us and we will we will spit hot fire at your opponents on your behalf? Because if that was me, I got to think that would be one of the things in the agreement where I'd be like, nah, I'll do that. I'll just go ahead and handle my own Twitter. Now, granted. Habib may not be as as fired up about social media as some other people, but at the same time, it just seems awkward to me. Maybe you just asked the follow-up, wait a minute, is the person who is going to be handling my social media known for being a careful and, and sober and, and reasonable assessor of situations? And furthermore, is he capable of checking to see which goddamn account he's logged into? Those would be my questions. And here, I might find the answers wanting. All right, next question. Let's do the next question. Uh, next question. Well, this one, this one is a long one, so you're just going to have to settle in here. This is from Adam Reshan. Reshan. Reshan? Adam Reshan? Reshan. It's is not it... easy. See, now the tables are turned. This happens every time. When you are charged with reading some emails, it's not as easy to just stand over there and point and laugh. Can I read the email now? It's a long one. Is it just me, or does the UFC sale remind you of the time the Germans bought the nuclear power plant from C. Montgomery Burns? No. See, we're off okay, to a good see, start, See, now though. you can see why we're, right. we're giving Adam Rashan a little bit of time. Rishan. The Germans assumed then made another calculated investment until they took a closer look at the plant and realized that the infrastructure was in dire need of updating. There was an abundance of employee, in parentheses, independent contractor, unrest, and the longest tenured employee was an oafish bald man known for violent outbursts. Obviously, the UFC has a star problem, and I don't know how WME can fix it. Bones can't fight. Rousey just got smoked by that woman that wears the big gold belt thing around her waist. And their number one star is on paternity leave and savvy enough to know he's really in control. How is WME going to create stars that engage casual fans? God knows we're excited that the Korean zombie has completed his mandatory military service. But come on, discuss. Strong. Strong emails. Yeah. Strong emails this week from the faithful out there all over the world co-main event podcast worldwide audience now we've talked a little bit about the difficulty in the first half of 2017 given the lay of the land here yeah and how that affects the the financial situation because of some of the earnouts for the the old ufc executives that are in, in uh in built into the sale price and it looks like those could be tough to meet because ronda rousey seems like if she ever fights again, it's probably not going to happen in the next six months. John Jones can't fight in the next six months because of that USADA suspension. Conor McGregor, we don't know when he's going to fight again. Uh, he said that there's going to have to be a private plane showing up to get him for some equity talks before he considers fighting again. So where's it going to come from? But I think that that is a separate question from the long-term, like, how do you build new stars thing? Because I do think that we sometimes freak out a little bit too soon on that. And there, here's one where I think Dana White has made some good points in the past where he said, hey, when Chuck Liddell retired, people asked the same question. When George St. Pierre's not around, people ask the same question. And they do figure it out. They do manage to, whether through a calculated effort or just on accident because the stars kind of find their own way to the top, they do manage to figure out who is going to be the next person to carry that torch. I just don't see it figuring out in the next six months, though. Yeah. I think that this is going to be a rough start to 2017, uh, and I mean rough 
like relatively speaking, 2016 was the, we think the most financially successful year in the history of the UFC. So when you say 2017 might be quote unquote rough, I mean that somewhat relatively, like it'll, they'll still be very profitable most likely throughout the first, you know, six to eight months of this year before they start getting John Jones back before maybe they can entice uh, Conor McGregor back before maybe Ronda Rousey decides that she wants to return, uh, which judging by the pay-per-view numbers that we're led to believe she may have pulled down at UFC 207 seems perhaps more likely if you're interested in making money hand over fist instead of, uh, you know, your, your f- philosophical journey. Right. Uh, well, especially that's, if she really did do 1.1 million pay-per-view buys without even trying. Yeah. Without uh, doing like without either on the promotional side or in finger. the fight itself, then yeah. But yeah, I think you're going to have a, a slight, a slight downturn at the beginning of this year. Um, and as to the question of creating stars, uh, I feel like sometimes we talk about it in this way where like, oh, well, maybe the UFC should just make that person a star or make that person a star. And I think sometimes the UFC even maybe gets caught up in its own, what it sees as its own ability to make, quote unquote, make stars. But I think the truth is, it might be kind of hard to do that. Like, the, the, the actual fact of the matter might be that it's more difficult to create, quote unquote, create stars in this sport than we give them credit for. Because you, you can't just pick some jerk off the street or, you know, someone at random from the UFC roster and turn them into a star. You need, like, a lightning rod, Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey, Chuck Liddell type figure to sort of prop up in this star role. So maybe it's not the case of trying to make those stars, but like identifying those stars and, and like just sort of lucking into having those stars come around. Well, that to me, and I know you always think it's weird how uh, I think the Sage Northcutt experiment is so fascinating. Right. But that's one of the things that I think is interesting about it is because it seems to me like one of the most transparent efforts by the UFC ever to kind of say, this guy. We think this guy is a star, and we're going to tell you he's a star. We're going to pay him like a star, and it's just going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And the problem they've run into right. is that you still got to put him in the damn cage and lock the door and hope he comes out in one piece. Yeah, and see, I would see, I would point to Sage Northcutt and Paige Van Zant, both of those exper- experiments, as evidence in favor of how it's hard to kind of do that, how it's hard to uh, to go out consciously and create and build people up into stars because especially in mixed martial arts where uh, people just lose a lot. You have to be pretty damn good to go on a Conor McGregor or a Ronda Rousey style run where you just roll through everybody uh, on the planet for, for a while. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's difficult than that. And I, and like, I, as, as I've said on the show before, I think if any company in the world is in the position to try to latch on to some young fighters and turn them into potential stars, WME IMG has to be positioned as well as anyone in to do that just with their contacts in the entertainment industry and, and, you know, their experience in, in cultivating people's brands, even though I kind of hate talking about people as brands, like if you're concerned with like the future and who's going to be the next star, I would think at least my guess would be WME IMG is uh, like has the sport in more capable hands than the Fertitta brothers would have. Well, the thing I wonder uh, that we'll find out when we see WME IMG's approach to this is, is it going to be different from the way the UFC seemed to struggle at times between do we want to promote individual stars or do we want to promote the brand? Uh, because I think, you know, maybe there's a little bit of uh, 
iffy feeling on how you made Conor McGregor into a star or you helped make him into a great big star, and now he's raking you over the coals uh, because he can. And maybe you don't want that to happen again. You want to make sure that the UFC is the, you know, the the ongoing brand and that that's what has the power. You know, you make Dana White the guy you keep putting on TV out there and people can uh, get used to seeing him, but that you don't rely too much on any one person. Um, at the same time, how do you sell 1.5 million pay-per-view buys a pop if you don't have that huge uh, power invested in one star? All right, next question this week comes to us from Adrian Navarez, who writes, Looking at the prelims main event, Lil Pettis could get three straight wins. Could we see him make a run for the title? Now, obviously, Adrian Navarez is referring to uh, John Moraga versus Sergio Pettis, which is the featured prelim on the Fox Sports 1 preliminary card, which comes up right before the Fox Sports 1 main card right. of this Saturday or Sunday night UFC event. Real clear distinction. Uh, but, it, you know, it's an interesting question, at especially at flyweight, where you have kind of a dearth of contenders right now and, and one of the perhaps the UFC's last really dominant champion remaining uh, in Demetrius Johnson. I guess potentially you add Joanna Jacek to that list, but uh, considering all the turnover at the championship level in the UFC during 2016, Mighty Mouse is your longest reign in person by a long shot at this point since he's been champion since 2012. And I feel like we have a tendency to think about Sergio Pettis as having had kind of an up and down UFC career. But when you look at it, he's actually five and two. And as Adrian Navarez points out, if he goes out there and beats John Moraga this weekend, he will have three wins in a row. Now I'm not going to sit here and tell you Sergio Pettis will be ready to jump in there with Demetrius Johnson uh, the week after. And you know, John Moraga comes into this thing on the heels of an O and two run in 2015, 2016, uh, in, including a loss to Joseph Benavidez, uh, who obviously has been a perennial contender in that division. But if you're Sergio Pettis and you can put together three wins at 125 pounds, then maybe you're looking, or three straight wins, I should say, then uh, maybe you're looking at a much brighter future than we had thought for you at one point, especially in this division that kind of needs all of the star power slash contenders slash up-and-coming guys it can get. Well, yeah, and Sergio Pettis seems pretty primed to uh, fit well into that because you know, like you mentioned, he's five and two in the UFC. And if you look at the two, you know, one was that kind of crazy back and forth bout with Alex Caceres, where uh, it'll seem like it was up for grabs, anybody's fight. And then Caceres gets him in like the last minute. Uh, and that was, you know, I think that was like his 11th pro fight. So he was still very young at that point. And then the other one is that one to Ryan Benoit, where he is just tooling him up. Uh, in the first round and then goes out there and gets clipped early in the second one. And uh, he seemed about as shocked as anybody at, at that one. I think though, you know, if you talk to him, he's a really good interview. He's a smart dude. He's an interesting guy. The The Pettis name helps a little bit with uh, name awareness. Uh, so I think right now, if he just gets a couple high profile wins and cements himself as like his own entity in people's minds and not just uh, pretty Tony's little brother, then, yeah, I, I could see it happening. But I, I also agree that the danger there might be that the UFC, through a dearth of other challengers, throws him in there too quickly and he gets smashed. Right. This is one of those divisions where it's hard to have a long period of evolution uh, between when you arrived in the company and when you end up fighting for the title if people think that you're going to turn out being really, really good because there just isn't that much competition floating around. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that's an obvious and... Uh, big-time challenge for Sergio Pettis that he may get thrown to the Wolves before he's ready. 
Yeah. Uh, next one. This comes from Jeff of Atlanta. Uh, just kind of sounding like a like a Duke there, which I appreciate. Even after her recent loss, does Ronda Rousey belong on the MMA fighters Mount Rushmore? Who else deserves to have their visage immortalized in the side of Mount Zion's? Hoist Gracie, Baruto, the poet. Yeah, I mean, if you're going for impact on the sport and uh, all around sort of like pioneer status, I think Ronda Rousey absolutely belongs to be on a hypothetical MMA Mount Rushmore uh, since she sort of picked up the baton for Gina Carano after her career ended. Gina Carano really put women's MMA on the map in America. And, you know, after she kind of faded into the background after her own loss to uh, Cyborg back in the day, Rousey certainly uh, grabbed the baton and took women's MMA to much greater heights, single-handedly pretty much changed the UFC's mind about promoting women's fights, became arguably the, the biggest star the company had ever created up to that point, maybe the biggest star ever, uh, and ran through the 135-pound competition like without breaking a sweat, basically, until she ran into Holly Holm and then Amanda Nunes in back-to-back fights. So I would say yes, absolutely, despite the fact that Ronda Rousey's, the end of Ronda Rousey may be somewhat ignoble, and uh, perhaps the the narrative around Ronda Rousey will be somewhat negative moving forward. I still think uh, due to, you know, overall uh, what she brought to the sport, I think, yeah, for sure, she's she's one of the greats uh, who deserves to have her face etched in stone, I guess, is what we're talking about here. Sure, yeah. Well, yeah, and I think if you're asking, like, if that's what we're talking about is impact, like historical impact on the sport, who could, like, especially for women's MMA, who has been more important to women's MMA than Ronda Rousey? I mean, Gina Carano, I, you're right, did a whole lot for it, but not on the same level that Ronda Rousey did. And maybe without Gina Carano, there is no Ronda Rousey, but... uh Ronda Rousey's impact has, has been far greater. And I also, though, think that if the, if I can make an argument that she will come back, I think that what you just mentioned there is the thing that will eventually entice her back, is that if it ends like this, for one thing, it looks maybe a little too similar to the career arc of Gina Carano, uh, and it just it leaves such a, a bad taste on the whole thing. It, it, it puts a a shadow over the whole thing that threatens to kind of uh overshadow all the good things that she did. Who else you put up there? Rousey. I mean, I guess you got to put Hoist Gracie if, yeah. you, if that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Right? Um I mean, it feels like he is kind of slipping in there on like, you know, some kind of Teddy Roosevelt shit. George Washington style shit. Really like <laughs> is the first, right? So you got to put him up there. Yeah, um yeah, then I guess, you know, Who's who's your Lincoln? Who's your your Thomas Jefferson there? See, this is a conversation we're not prepared for. I think <laughs> Fedor is obviously Thomas Jefferson. Next question this week comes to us from Graham Harper. He writes, so with Mr. No Love, Cody Garbrandt, doing the damn thing against Dominic Cruz at UFC 207, Garbrandt, who actually showed a lot of love for young cancer survivor Maddox post-fight, became the 10th fighter in the UFC to become the new champion of their division in 2016. That's not counting interims as who doesn't have one of those these days. With such a high number of title changes last year and an early theme of champions looking to call out fighters in other divisions in 2017, does the UFC have a problem with actually putting on fights in 2017 where deserving contenders get their fair crack at the champion, or or are we going to be stuck in a cycle of interim champions being promoted without ever fighting uh, the division's big cheese as the UFC's new owner search for quote-unquote super fights that can sell pay-per-views? You know, this is a a good 
question because I think we see a lot of this propping up now. You see it in Bantamweight with uh, Cody Garbrandt immediately turn around and be like, you know what, TJ Dillashaw, I don't know. I don't know if that interests me. Right. Uh, you see it at welterweight with Tyron Woodley trying to set up a 180-pound catchweight with Michael Bisping of all things. And, of course, Michael Bisping then turning around and being like, Oh, you're saying I could fight somebody smaller than me and somebody who is not UL Romero? Actually, I think that that sounds like a fine idea. Uh, and like we've talked about before, we can't get too mad at those people for learning the lessons that the UFC has taught them inadvertently, right. which is that, hey, you know, you got to have the fights that people are most interested in if you want to make money. The champions are the ones that make money. You don't know how long you're going to have that belt. That's when you get your hands on a cut of the pay-per-view usually and when you have the chance to start making really life-changing amount of money. So, of course, you're going to look for the biggest possible payday. The problem is that then it just starts to get pretty goddamn ridiculous when nobody wants to fight the number one contender in their division. Everybody is looking around for you know something that just is has a little more sizzle to it. Uh, I think the thing that's going to haul that back in is that all of these guys, pretty much like without exception, they lack the the same pull that a guy like Conor McGregor has. Like he can kind of call his shots with some of that stuff because of the huge numbers he does. And what the rest of them are doing is looking for somebody who might do huge numbers for them. Right. Because if you're looking around and you're saying, I don't know if this guy can sell that many pay-per-views, what you're kind of saying is that, and I won't either by myself. So I need somebody to, to do a lot of the heavy lifting for me there. Yeah, and maybe the the ultimate deciding factor is whether or not any of these other matchups actually do anything to move the needle on pay-per-view. You know, like, does Michael Bisping against Tyron Woodley uh, at 180 pounds do a better number on pay-per-view than just doing a rematch between Tyron Woodley and Steven Thompson or doing a fight between Tyron Woodley and uh, uh, Damian Maya, or does it do a better number than Bisping against Yoel Romero? If the answer is uh, no or marginally, not really, then you probably have, uh, you know, a reversion to the, to the UFC's traditional weight class system and number one contender system. If lo and behold, it does turn out that a Michael Bisping, champion versus champion versus Tyron Woodley significantly pops your, your pay-per-view buy rate, then yeah, you could be looking at a, an, a total collapse of the old system and kind of a, a, a new frontier in pay-per-view where, uh, you know, these kind of like catchweight matchups are, are the new thing. Although again, like as a, 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 a sub comment on that, you still need to have those champions, right? To make, you would think that to make, Michael Bisping versus Tyron Woodley uh, enticing for the pay-per-view consumer. A lot of that would have to do with them being the champions. And if their weight class system and number one contender system is no longer front and center, then I think that creates problems for you. But again, I think like that's all hypothetical. And I think that the actual answer is probably that Michael Bisping versus Tyron Woodley wouldn't do a huge number on pay-per-view. And that aside from a couple of real big ticket fighters, you are going to have uh, this weight class and and more old school UFC matchmaking number one contender style still r continue to rule the day. Well, yeah, and I think that if those guys want to put their foot down too heavy on it, the UFC is going to tell them, "Look, sign this paper to fight the number one contender, or else a we'll do the UFC thing where we make you look bad in front of everybody, and b then you really won't get paid. You won't have a chance to get any portion of the pay per view uh, while you're champion because you won't be fighting and. I think you can do that with, they can flex that muscle on Tyron Woodley in a way that they're not going to flex it on Conor McGregor. Okay, here's one from Jonathan Ganyu. 
So Cody Garbrandt shows up on the scene with his neck tattoos and high school bully good looks, and we agree he's kind of a douchebag. Then he starts knocking fools out, and we agree it's kind of awesome. Then he tries to verbally take on Dominic Cruz in interviews, and is eviscerated, and we remember he's kind of a douchebag. Then he walks out to the cage with some kind of make-a-wish kid, and he's awesome again. But during that unquestionably awesome performance, Garbrandt hustles and jives, break dances, mocks and showboats, but I haven't heard one negative reaction to that yet. Imagine poor Sugar Rashad trying to get away with that bullshit. Matt Hughes would roll over in his grave. In all this fighter of the year talk, have we forgotten that old Cody's still kind of a douchebag? Ouch. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Ultimately, let's if Cody Garbrandt does hold down that men's 135-pound championship for a while uh, and become a capital G guy for the UFC in that division, maybe one of his, weird, weirdly enough, maybe one of his strengths will be he offers you uh, highlight reel knockouts, but at the same time, there's a significant part of the fan base that is kind of turned off by his personality and may tune in to watch him get beat, which, you know, in retrospect, may have been a big part of Ronda Rousey's drawing power, considering the outpouring of glee that has occurred after both of her recent losses. And if you're Cody Garbrandt, you know, the old pro wrestling adage, either boos or cheers, you just don't want to hear silence when you're out there. Maybe that's uh maybe that would be a good thing for him. Yeah, I mean that is that has historically been the most reliable way to become a star in combat sports is to make sure that at least some people are willing to pay to see someone else put their foot deep in your ass. Uh, and maybe it would be awesome if he keeps perpetrating this almost kind of Eddie Haskell-ish thing where he's going out there. Outwardly, seems like he's being a jerk. You know, you see the the tattoos and everything, and you think like, okay, that, that seems like somebody who is more prone to shove you in a locker than to help you make a wish come true. Uh, but then also... He's got like as kind of a, a human shield the the cancer kid, so you can't say too much bad about him. He's still he's he's the guy your your mom thinks is such a nice boy, and then as soon as she turns her back, you know he's hiding his cigarettes in the couch cushions. Wow, did you just refer to Cody Garbrandt's cancer survivor kid as a human shield? <laughs> um, Out of context, I think that sounds worse than how yeah. you meant it. Let's um. Uh, Let's, let's, we'll come back to that later. <laughs> Next question this week comes to us from Steve Leslie. He writes, we'll keep this short. Only three UFC belts remained with the same fighter for the duration of 2016. Demetrius Johnson, Daniel Cormier, and Joanna Yo- Yenjacek. Uh, which current champions do you see still holding the belt come 2017? And then he says, chat breeze. What? I, I don't know exactly what that means, but I kind of like it. Is that a thing in some some other country that we're not aware so of? So now we're going to chat breeze with each other about these UFC champions. Uh, Who's buy me dinner first? I got my picks, I think. Because let's just should we just go through the list real quick here? Well, one thing that, important to note here when he says Daniel Cormier as as one of the people who held on to his title did not put his title up for grabs in mm. 2016. So. I, we'll take it at this point. All right, technicality or no. Okay, here's the thing. Stipe Miocic is your heavyweight champion. I feel like you're foolhardy to say anyone is going to hold the heavyweight title for an entire calendar year. Agree or disagree? Agree. Daniel Cormier going to lose to John Jones in July. At this point, by July, John Jones could be in the lockup. True. True fact. Michael Bisping, shaky champion at best, right? Yoel Romero probably going to be the favorite in their fight. True. Tyron Woodley at welterweight, uh, a good solid champion, but not a guy that I think you would think of as dominant at this point. Squeaked one out against Stephen Thompson in, in his last title defense. It didn't really squeak it out as a draw, so 
held, I mean, still held got to keep to the it, title. Yes. Uh, you well, know what, though? He really did squeak one out there. I think maybe the, the best chance Tyron Woodley has to hold on to the title is that it would, it would be frustrating for the UFC. Uh, lightweight, Conor McGregor. I'm going to say hesitantly, yes. Still the lightweight champion at the end of this year, if for no other reason that he's going to be out for a long time and then, who knows, maybe involved in some kind of protracted uh, uh, contract negotiation with the UFC. And even when he does return, it's not necessarily a given that the thing he will do is defend that lightweight title. True. true. At featherweight right now, you got Jose Aldo and Max Holloway. I guess maybe it's sort of cheating, but I'm going to say one of those two guys is the champ at the end of the year. It does feel like cheating, but I won't disagree. All right. Then Cody Garbrandt at Bantamweight. Uh, I feel like it's premature to put that much stock in Garbrandt. Yeah, it's tough. There's a lot of unanswered questions there still. Um, but I would not be surprised. I would not be stunned if he's still the champion. Demetrius Johnson, I think, obviously still your flyweight champion yep. at the end of the year. Even if they have to have him go door to door and fight 100, whatever 125 pound man answer the door. Still after be into that. I'm still into that. Amanda Nunes? <sighs> no. I'm agree with you there. I'm going to say no. And then I think Joanna Jacek is another. Uh, About as close as a lock. The equivalent of a three foot putt in mixed martial arts <laughs> to still be the champion. So there you go, Steve Leslie. More bang for your buck there. Next question. Next question comes from Jeff Raining. Settle a debate I was having with a friend. He suggests the UFC do a super fight between Michael Bisping and Tyron Woodley, an interim title fight between Stephen Thompson and Demian Maia, and an interim title fight between Yoel Romero and Jacare Souza. I, the right one, say you keep it simple. <laughs> Woodley Thompson 2, Bisping Romero, or no, Woodley, uh, Woodley Thompson 2, Bisping Romero, and Maia versus Donald Cerrone for the number one contendership at 170 pounds. I know the times they are changing when it comes to matchmaking, but Tyrone Woodley versus Michael Bisping doesn't seem like it'd do that much better on pay-per-view. Here we go. Ah. Than my aforementioned idea. Is doing a super fight with your two most disliked champions that no one really seems to think is all that super worth creating two interim titles? Yeah, we kind of talked about this before. Uh, I guess I will just answer it by saying, personally, I think the idea of a tie... I mean, nobody's going to argue with Woodley against Stephen Thompson. Two. Their first fight was awesome. As Ben said, ended in a draw, running it back, no problem. I'm also going to say, of all of the fights kind of bandied about between all of these guys, Tyron Woodley versus Damian Maya, which I know those two guys were both talking about to each other on Twitter this afternoon, uh, is kind of awesome as far as I'm concerned because I would like to see the Brazilian jiu-jitsu specialist Damian Maya go out there and try to fight uh, wrestling specialist and heavy-handed puncher and Tyron Woodley. I think that that uh, is a super interesting matchup of styles that I would not argue with at all. Uh, and I don't know, man, do you feel like I mean, depending on how you think it turns out, do you feel like it is cruel to be excited about Michael Bisping versus Yoel Romero? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of excited about just the weirdness of the whole thing. Well, come on. After you had that moment with, as you said, you, Romero sounded like the cookie monster standing there in the cage and Michael Bisping uh, communicating entirely in a series of mostly profane hand gestures. Yeah, that was awesome. Response, that was like one of the awesomest things to happen to the middleweight title in a long time. Yeah. That series of hand gestures. Yeah, I think it'd be a, just a crying shame to miss out on the opportunity to make that fight. I tell you what you do, and this, you know, we're talking about how you do like the really big pay-per-view numbers and whether it would make a, a huge difference to screw around with it that much just to get maybe a, a slight bump. I think in the absence of the huge megastars, the UFC has to rely on kind of the old model of stacking those pay-per-views to the point where 
people will buy it because they feel like there's just too much good stuff, not because there's just one huge thing that they absolutely got to see. So why don't we just throw them all together, man? Why don't we do Bisping Romero as the main event, co-main event? You got Tyron Woodley, Stephen Thompson too. And then as your, your kicker, as a little extra special sauce on that pay-per-view, you got Donald Cerrone and Demian Maia for number one contender. I like it. I'm not going to turn my nose up at it. Hashtag would watch. You are not missing that or nothing. Next question this week comes to us from Beeston258. He writes, there's been a lot of garbage takes about Ronda Rousey, uh, which they seem to surround her constantly, whether they be too positive, e.g. Ring Magazine cover, or too negative. And I've seen a lot of MMA fans railing back against these criticisms. I'm sitting over here thinking this is the best thing for her image, at least with MMA fans. You're not going to convince an estimated 1.1 million people that bought UFC 193 that this once-in-human-history athlete that was just destroyed was not overrated, nor the estimated 1.2 million people that bought UFC 207 that she wasn't exposed. MMA fans that followed her career from Strike Force to now, different story. If a bunch of hot take artists are saying she was never good, she always sucked, just f- faced cans, etc., me and every other MMA fan thinks back to her good wins and not the back-to-back demolitions, demolitions she experienced at the hands of Holly Holm and Amanda Nunes. It seems in our little community that nothing upsets us more than when outsiders take our pseudo-sport away from us. Wow, that is actually a, a nuanced argument. Yeah, and I think it's he, he might be right. You know, I think that, like, rallying the hardcore mixed martial arts fans to come to the defense of Ronda Rousey is maybe not the worst thing for her image if and when she decides to come back to the cage. Uh, did you see the thing Jordan Breen wrote? about the the like the fallout of UFC 207? No. I thought he had a he summed it up in a pretty good way and I hope that I am characterizing his argument correctly. Basically to say that almost all of the as Beast in 258 writes uh garbage hot takes about Ronda Rousey come from people who don't normally cover mixed martial arts and it's almost as though those people don't follow the sport closely enough or don't consider the sport worthy of having a nuanced argument about it. So in one breath, you have people like the mainstream broadcast media build, building Ronda Rousey up as unbeatable. And then in the next breath, you have those same people saying that she's overrated, basically undermining a myth that they themselves created, which sounds mostly right to me. I'm inclined to believe with, to, to believe that even though, you know, I think people in the mixed martial arts sphere, uh, saw Ronda Rousey for a while as potentially unbeatable and as a person who might retire undefeated uh if only in the way that she was because of the way she was flying through all of her competition and all of her opponents uh but i think that the people that have had the real reactionary takes on it have been you know the skip baylesses and shannon sharps of the world people who maybe don't cover this sport as closely as a lot of other people uh so i'm actually inclined to agree with beast in 25 8 to say uh having mma fans kind of come to the defense of ronda rousey may in a weird way uh, work in her favor. Well, yeah, one of the things that Danny Downs and I talked about when we discussed this in our trading shots thing was it seems like if you come from outside the MMA world, then maybe you are less familiar with what a goddamn cliche it is to be the person who is saying this was the greatest fighter ever when she's winning and then she was never good the moment she loses. Like MMA people, we've seen that trope enough that we kind of like even if your inclination is to say that out loud and to go in that direction you probably are familiar enough with how it's gone in the past and to to 
check yourself a little bit and be like, oh, wait a minute, I'm just doing the thing that people always do. Uh, and if you're if you come from outside the MMA world, maybe you don't realize uh, just what a a textbook hack you're being at that exact moment. All right, next question. The next question seems to be about football. You want to answer that one or skip over it? What are you doing here with this, including this football question? I just included all the questions we got. Okay. I mean, all the questions that weren't, uh, you know, uh, duplicates. We got a lot, we always get a lot of questions that are the same questions, right? So you got to pick the best one and go with it. This is the only one we got about who we think is going to win the Super Bowl. So Matt Webb gets on the list, regardless of, uh, that it may or may not be applicable to the focus of this show. Uh, no offense to Matt Webb and his Super Bowl question. I'm going to skip it. I got the Patriots. <laughs> I'm going to go to David Bergen's question. Where I'm he says, the Patriots. Now, in a world where USADA got fighters looking sideways at the ingredients list on a tin of Altoids, where a UFC number one ranking almost guarantees no title shot in the near future, where a post-fight call-out of management instead of a higher-ranked fighter is the new black, I keep telling myself, man... The Fritas got out at the right time. Fritas. And that seems like a bad thing. Are we in danger of the system destroying itself? Are you hopeful about some course correction in 2017? I'm going to light up a space cowboy cigarette and listen to y'all discourse this. Thank God I'm definitely not a kid and can enjoy these. You know what was a bummer was the Raiders losing David Carr. Okay. So late in the season. Yeah. Because they were looking good. And then, you know, obviously, in the NFL, you lose your quarterback. That's a tough thing to rebound. Ain't from. that some shit? Yeah. yeah. So... I am maybe hopeful about a course correction a little bit in 2017, and the thing that makes me most hopeful about it, and no, I don't disagree that the Freitas got out at the right time. You look at all no, the... No, you talk about some dudes that came into an unregulated industry, uh, sunk, what, $2 million into it to buy the UFC? Uh, sold it for $4.2 billion and skated out the back door to Bishop Gorman football practice uh, just before any any of these potential headaches uh, and come to the fore. Yes, there More are a lot of them. that are listed here. Yes. Uh, and are now basically scot-free, cooling their heels on a golf course somewhere. The Freitas? More power to them, I guess. Yeah, this is, they're living the heist movie where the dude gets away in the end. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, you gotta think that they feel pretty good about it. The thing that makes me hopeful for, I don't know if course correction is even the word, but some kind of course alteration is that these people paid a ton of money for this thing. So they it's in their best interest to figure out how to make it work. The question is exactly how is that going to be because uh, there's a history in combat sports of when people feel like, okay, we, we as the promoters need to figure out how to make more money on this thing. It usually does not go that well for the fighters uh, and might not necessarily go that well for the fans. So they're going to have to figure out, though, like how to get their money back out of this thing. And it's a whole lot of damn money. But I think that, if anything, that just ensures that they're going to be thinking about it with a longer timeline. They they can't afford just to think of like the way the, the Freitas were in these last couple of years in a position where they could afford to think about how do we temporarily increase the value of this thing. Right. For instance, maybe we sign a exclusive apparel deal. Um, where it, we tell people that all the money is going to the fighters, even though it's not. Um, maybe we, we keep a little bit more of that money for ourselves than, than we might otherwise have uh, considered doing. Stuff like that, where you can kind of temporarily inflate the value for the purposes of a sale, whereas these people now, they have to figure out how to make this thing really work if they don't want this to be just a colossal blunder on their part. 
Yeah, WMEIMG has to think about this thing in a far more long-term way than maybe the Fertitta brothers ever did. Uh, and in retrospect, now that you have this like legitimate corporate over- overlord in WMEIMG, it kind of makes what the Fertittas did look like a classic mom and pop shop slash family business operation, even though it's one that uh, ballooned to an enormous size and eventually uh, collected an enormous payday in the sale, right? The WME IMG comes in, they've got uh, their own uh, uh, infrastructure in place in their company in terms of PR and a lot of other stuff. Uh, and so you saw these initial layoffs, which obviously were bad news for the people that worked at the UFC and not the kind of thing that, that you want to celebrate uh, or talk positively about. But at the same time, if you told me that the Fertitas had created some redundancies inside the UFC power structure, I'll believe you because they're not necessarily running things uh, by the textbook uh, big business playbook. Like they're kind of doing their own thing. So I think that there is some reason for optimism about the WME IMG ownership. Uh, I was personally a little bit heartened to see rumors on the internet. I think uh, Front Row Brian was tweeting about what may happen to the uh, UFC television schedule after the Fox deal runs its course at the end of 2018, I believe. Yes. Uh, and and that perspective, you know, at least that rumored uh, new slate of television for the UFC included fewer pay-per-views and more of an emphasis on network television broadcasts, which I think would be good for fans because that would be potentially the first year maybe in the history of the UFC where it cost less money that that year to be a fan of the UFC than it did the previous year. Uh, and I think, you know, that kind of approach would not only be smart in terms of the, uh, the topic that we discussed a few minutes ago about uh, creating new stars by utilizing that network television slot a little bit better, uh, but might also save hardcore fans a little bit of money because we wouldn't have to buy quite as many pay-per-views each year. So I think that kind of stuff is potentially turning in a positive direction. Now, whether or not any of this enormous profit that has to be earned uh, winds up in the pockets of fighters, I think is a completely different discussion uh, and a long one that you would have to have. Uh, although the magic eight ball at this point maybe says signs point to no, just because (laughs) WME IMG is going to have to make so much money in order to make the $4.2 billion that it potentially has to pay for the UFC worthwhile that it seems inconceivable that they would be like, you know what we ought to do is cut the athletes a, a, a bigger percentage of these, of this revenue. Yeah. It just seems counterproductive to what they're trying to do. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, I was caught myself unawares here. Next question this week comes to us from Chris Rennie. He writes, one sentence that gets under my skin these days is, quote, belts don't matter anymore, end quote. I suspect that the day Conor McGregor ex- exits MMA, belts are going to become way more important again. It reminds me of another time the game was thought to have changed, the era dubbed the new breed of heavyweights featuring Brock Lesnar and Shane Carwin. That era was ended by Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos, and the less said, the better. Could it just be <laughs> that the that booking big names has always generated more eyeballs and the current money fights trend didn't begin with Connor, but actually at UFC 183 with Nick Diaz versus Anderson Silva, please conversate. Huh, that's interesting. I mean, I think that the the belts matter, especially if the most like distinctive and attention getting thing you can say about a fighter is he has the belt right now. Like you look like a Tyron Woodley, I think is a good example where if he didn't have the belt, 
He'd just be kind of another welterweight who's right up there near the top and is really good, but people are not that interested. But once he has the belt, then he's the guy. And that becomes, like, his main selling point. But there are those other fighters, and, like, Nick Diaz has proven to be one of those other fighters, where he can still kind of be the guy just because people are interested in him. He doesn't really need a belt in order to get people to want to see him fight. But there's not that many of those guys. Right. You got an, the Undertaker. An, the right. Undertaker doesn't need the title. He can just show up at WrestleMania once a year and do his thing, and it's and it's all good. Uh, as I think everybody who listens to this show knows, I'm kind of a traditionalist in this respect. Uh, one of the things that I initially found most compelling about mixed martial arts and about the UFC product, especially, was this idea that everyone was that it was like a grand tournament to try to figure out who was the best fighter in the world at all of these different weight classes. Uh, that's just one of the things that I found fascinating about it. And frankly, that was an opportunity that didn't always exist in other combat sports like boxing, where uh, there isn't a strong centralized power like the UFC is where most of the fighters fight under the, most of the top fighters fight under the same corporate banner and all eventually fight each other. And eventually you have at least some kind of idea about who's the best. I find that to be really enticing and really positive uh, for mixed martial arts. Um, that said, like the last couple of years, I've had to become a little bit more accepting of the idea that these big super fights or money fights are going to become a little bit more common and that there's frankly nothing wrong with that because watching Nick Diaz fight Anderson Silva is pretty fun. And I'm, and I'm okay with that. Uh, at the same time though, I'm kind of hopeful that the, the natural order of things doesn't fall by the wayside. And I would just, as an addendum to that point out, one of the things that, to, I mean, I think we've gone through this kind of like shift in consciousness, right? Public shift in consciousness about what these belts and titles actually mean. Uh, and one of the things that I think added to that was the UFC itself going to Congress uh, and saying, hey, man, our, our belts don't really mean anything. They're yeah, just kind of like awards award. we yeah. give out, uh, in a, you know, as part of some advanced lobbying efforts to try to head off. Uh, the expansion of the Muhammad Ali Act to also include mixed martial arts. If that's what the promoter is saying, then the suspension of disbelief becomes a lot more difficult for me as a fan to like think, okay, what we're actually trying to do is figure out who's best I, and not just make a bunch of money. I think more more than that, because who knows how many people are actually paying attention to what the USC is supposedly telling congressmen, is the proliferation of interim belts. That lets people know that the belts are just something that you can yank out of a closet when you need to uh, because you want to be able to put that there's a title fight on the poster. Um, so, yeah, I, and I got no problem with all the, the fun fight kind of stuff going on. If it's being if there's not a better, like more legitimate sporting uh, matchup that's being tabled in order to do this. Like when it's Anderson Silva, Nick Diaz, and both of them at the moment kind of ain't got shit going on outside of that, fine. Even when it's Anderson Silva, Daniel Cormier, and you know what, we wanted to do something else, but it fell apart for reasons outside of our control, and we still want to have some kind of a fight, so fine, let's do something that's just weird enough to be interesting, fine. When you start just like taking a, a, a champion who has a bunch of really interesting and notable contenders who have earned the right to challenge for the belt and instead you're just doing something else with him just uh, because you think that maybe it'll get a few more eyeballs that's when i think you you start to get into tricky territory um next question here from ash zawarton on a non-mma note okay i see you're going to read the reading question but you're going to turn your nose up at the football question well, from earlier we're we're 
we're getting down here on the list. We're we're almost out of here, okay? All right. I'm just pointing that out. All right. You can't hide from the truth. I just I don't care about who wins the Super Bowl. Uh, on a non-MMA note, as both of you are accomplished authors, can you talk a little bit about the importance of reading in your lives? Maybe touch on topics like your favorite books, favorite genres, why you prefer fiction versus nonfiction, etc. Hashtag ain't shit going on. You know, the Packers are really coming on. For a, a long time this season, it seemed like maybe they were going to have a down year. There's been a lot of talk about Aaron Rodgers, whether or not he's still the quote-unquote MVP of the league. Seem like they're turning it around at just the right time. Now they're in the tournament. Things seem they seem to be rolling a little bit. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna collect my things and I'm gonna go. <laughs> you know what's funny is that I don't know that I've watched an entire NFL game all season. I definitely have not. Okay. Um, okay. Nerd. The question was about reading. Yeah, talk about reading, nerd. <laughs> uh, this reminds me that a way to sneak in a tips for the well-rounded fight fan. I don't know if you follow. Uh, local internet funny man, Kevin Sessia. I think I'm saying his name completely wrong. I'm not sure. Um, if not, he's a very funny dude on Twitter. Uh, and I believe he's a comedian and a writer. He wrote a book, a, a funny book called uh, Punching Tom Hanks, which is actually very funny. And he uh, recommended on Twitter a book called uh, The North Water. I believe it's called The North Water. Yeah, it's yeah. called The North Water. Um, about whaling, ostensibly about like a whaling ship. Uh, first of all, kind of in your face, Moby Dick, because this one takes like, you know, a third of the time to read and is totally awesome. So uh, those of you out there looking for an awesome novel where a bunch of gross whaling dudes do gross whaling shit out on the, the high seas, you want to consider this book. Yeah, uh, The North Water was on a bunch of the best crime novels of 2016 list that I saw uh, as we discussed a couple of days ago. I, I just bought it on on Kindle when it was two ninety nine. They had one of those uh, like daily specials for it on on Amazon. But I haven't read it yet because I'm working like a dog to try to finish this second novel of mine. And I was afraid if I started reading it, that then that would infect my own writing. Yeah, I think it would. I think it's one of those books where it definitely would. I would just be I'd be trying to finish this mystery that I'm working on, but end up writing about whaling, which wouldn't serve anyone's purpose. <laughs> it might be entertaining. You know, as a writer though. The I, the old cliche is true that kind of the best thing that you can do to improve is read, uh, not only because you can just flat out steal techniques and ideas that you find, uh, you know, from reading other people's stuff, but it just kind of whatever for whatever reason uh, activates that part of your brain that uh, that that you use to to write and create and stuff like that. Uh, so if you're trying to to get better at a certain kind of writing to do, to do any, you know, no matter what your goals are, and maybe this is an obvious point, but I feel like one of the important things to do is is read all the stuff you can uh, of that same genre or that same style of writing. And, you know, eventually, almost through osmosis, you magically find yourself kind of getting better at it through the repetition of your own writing. Well, you know, one of the, the point about genre, I think, is a, is an interesting one because uh, my dad for a long time was trying to get me to read those, uh, Jack Reacher novels. Yeah. Um, and I resisted it because it just seemed like some kind of dime store garbage stuff. And while I'm not going to sit here and try and tell you that it is like the pinnacle of literary achievement, after I read one or two of them, and they are like kind of weirdly addicting, you can see why that dude is super rich now uh, off of writing those, and he's written like 30 of them or something, so that probably helps too. 
But sometimes I find when you read some of the stuff where it's not necessarily the hand of a master at work, it's a little easier to see where the, the seams are, are sewn together, which uh, as a writer can be really helpful. It's not, you know, if, you, if you're just sitting around and you're reading like absolute geniuses all the time, it can maybe be a little uh, dispiriting even to feel like, all right, I'm just, this. when you read somebody else's stuff, it seems like it just came fully formed, like pouring out of their head, like just you know, like breaking open the head of a god and jumping right out of there at you. And you read some of this other stuff and you get a sense like, okay, you can see some of these guys improving. You can see them stitching it together and working on it. Um, and and that that can help, weirdly enough. All right, we got to get out of here in a couple minutes, so maybe just this one more uh, message from Tom Rankin, who writes, Touch gloves, pow, fight over. Brothers, having seen this clip of the fight this week where the snake doesn't touch gloves and knocks out his opponent in three seconds, what's your opinion on it? Unfair or fair, but just lacking sportsmanship. Please discourse. Dundasso what? That's right, fool. And as I said on Twitter, the ultimate Dundasso move, uh, if you haven't seen this video where the two guys are going to touch gloves and one guy just kind of throws a straight right instead of touching gloves and ends up knocking the other guy out, uh, the ultimate Dundasso move would be then to just immediately retire in the cage <laughs> and walk away from the sport forever. Retire, because... book passage on a steamer. <laughs> and just sail away. Disappear. You know, head to, to China and change your name and never be found again. I always wonder about that, though, like, especially since we see so much stuff like guys hugging each other in the cage during the fight and, uh, you know, touching gloves at the start of every round. It seems like it must be at least a temptation for some people to just be like, all right, well, during this hug, I'll also slip in a, a trip takedown. <laughs> then I'm, off, I'm already on top. Like uh, the video once I saw of like a Sambo match between uh, the Emilianenko brothers where, of course, it's Alex, the one who extends his hand surprise, for a handshake surprise. and then he uses, pulls it right into an arm drag. Uh, I think he loses that one anyway because uh, Fedor is good and pure inside, uh, unlike his brother. But the problem is you go out there and you do that and... I'm not sure how good you get to feel about that win afterwards. That's not the kind of, that's not the good kind of Dundasso. The good kind of Dundasso is you kick a dude in the groin in like minute three of the fight while he's taking a long time to recover. You walk around looking at the crowd like, Hey, it's not my fault. Look at this guy. He's, he's milking it. Um, then in like the first minute of the second round, you look low, you kick high. Everybody gives you credit for a head kick knockout, and they just kind of conveniently forget that maybe you illegally gave the dude a reason to worry about where your legs were going to go. Well, that's, that's how you do it. That's that's how you do it. And that's going to do it for this week's Co-Main Event Podcast. Uh, you can go to the website, Co-Main Event, if you want to send in uh, emails to the podcast, questions, comments, concerns, whatever you want to send us. Uh, for use on future week's shows. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss when we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's funny. We like to think that uh, it's informative. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. We'll be back next week. We'll talk about all the stuff that happened at Yair Rodriguez versus BJ Penn. And then I think we'll look ahead to Chael Sonnen against Tito Ortiz in Bellator. Of course right? we will. The following Which I assume week. Meryl Streep will be in attendance for right after being in Invited by Scott Coker. Front and center. And then we got Valentina Shevchenko against Juliana Pena, Donald Cerrone versus George Masvidal. A lot of stuff happening coming up here. So we'll get back into the thick of it starting next week. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So here's a scenario for you. I'm ready for us. Meryl Streep, first row, enjoys some Chael Sonnen, Tito Ortiz, and then immediately holds a press conference where she announces 
that she was so very wrong. Heartfelt apology, this, right? This is not only one of the arts, it might be the entirety of the arts. The art. You know what? I, that might be a good direction for this sport, considering uh, the, the relative future of the other arts and the fact that uh, the president of the UFC currently has the ear of the next president of the United States. We might be able to get this thing certified.